Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Bros podcast. Welcome back. Uh, this is the cozy late night edition. Um, also, it's technically not the Tech Bros podcast. It probably should be called the Tech Bro podcast because there is no Egerton for this episode. I will be flying solo, as they say. Um, this is because Egerton hasn't had time to delve into the topic that I'll be talking about today. Um, that's mostly because I have, uh, basically he hasn't had a chance to watch The Social Dilemma, which is what I'll be discussing today. Obviously, this is a documentary that has been receiving a lot of uh, coverage and a lot of discussion, um, and it's kind of become quite a big deal. Uh, this is the Netflix documentary about social media, um, basically a a series of former developers and designers from uh, social media companies such as Facebook and Google um, and Twitter have essentially uh, come on camera to say uh, essentially how the design of their algorithms of social media work and the long-term effects that they might have for society as a whole. And this documentary has obviously been quite a big deal. Um, just in its first month, according to Netflix, it accrued 38 million households uh, viewing the film, which is absolutely huge. I mean, especially for a documentary. Um, I think that a lot of the topics and a lot of the things that documentary talks about are things that we probably knew were the case. We probably suspected a lot of um, what the documentary is talking about anyway. It's just now that it's out there and now that it's essentially uh, been sort of reported on, on film, essentially, we now know that it's a problem that maybe we need to pay more attention to. So the idea is that you have uh, Tristan Harris. He is a former design ethicist at Google. And he essentially founded this uh, Center for Humane Technology, um, and essentially what they want to do is they want to try and build a set of guidelines and try and actually guide the development of future technologies to be uh, sort of ethically and socially good. Especially given that uh, a few of the things that we'll kind of get into is that social media has a lot of problems that might actually have long-term detriment, detriments to uh, society as a whole. Um so I, I guess I'll sort of describe the film briefly and then sort of dive into a few of the main topics in it. So essentially what it is, is a docudrama, uh, I guess, rather than a documentary. It's, it splices these interviews with various former uh, figures within these tech companies, uh, kind of explaining how their design of their algorithms work. And then you ha also have this uh, kind of dramatization of... Uh, essentially this family, you have this sort of young boy who's, um, well, young man rather. Uh, he's essentially watching a lot of uh, content on social media. He's being suggested a lot of content that um, kind of turns him into a bit of a sort of polarized extremist in a way, kind of exposes him to a lot of extremist views. At the same time, you also have his sister who um, is kind of struggling with a lot of uh, self uh 
image problems due to the sorts of things that she sees on Instagram with its sort of filters and also the content that gets suggested. Um, and then the film kind of uses that to make causal links between the uh, the proliferation of social media and the rising cases in uh, young adult uh, suicides and self-harm and stuff like that. Um, so pretty sort of dark stuff there. Uh, and then you also have going on, whilst you have this drama of this family, you also have the uh, the kids essentially hooked to their phones. They The parents try to uh, limit the amount of time that they spend on their phones. So they, for example, they might say, you know, while we're eating at the dinner table, we don't want to use our phones. Um, so no phones at the dinner table. So take a break from your phone. Um, and then it kind of culminates in a, a thing where essentially the young man says that, you know, oh, I could go without my phone for a week. Um, and so they sort of lock their phones away in this cookie jar. Um, but of course, as you can probably imagine, he can't do that. He can't be without his phone for an extended period of time. Um, and then whilst that's going on, you then have this kind of representation of what's actually going on uh, in inside these sort of social media applications. So you have this, uh, it's kind of represented as these free people, um, almost like they're inside the, his phone or something like that. And they're essentially representing like, oh, what, what sort of content should we suggest to him at this specific time? So he's saying that, oh, this content seems to work pretty well at this time. So let's suggest this post from this person because he seems to really like posts from this person. Maybe there might be a romantic interest or something like that. Uh, and then that ties into the advertising. What sort of adverts should we suggest to this person um, based on sort of the uh, what they kind of describe as this internal representation of this person? Um, so each user of these apps are represented as a set of beliefs, a set of needs, a set of things that um, are kind of they're most susceptible to. Um, and it's kind of like a bunch of levers, essentially. You have a bunch of stats. Uh, you know, there's someone who likes horse riding. And if you suggest this sort of content, then they're more likely to engage with it. And, and that's sort of the big metric here is everything is gauged by engagement. Um, it's gauged by how much time people spend looking at the screen. So um, how much time do you spend looking at this at a particular post? How many times do you click on posts of a particular nature? And all of that kind of drives this, this, um, this ever evolving algorithm into kind of pigeonholing you into the sorts of things that increase your engagement time, because ultimately, that's what these social media applications are aiming for is to keep users engaged for as long as possible, using the apps as long as possible, being as hooked as possible. So that's kind of the the overview of the uh, of the documentary. Um, and I will kind of start there with this sort of representation of the of the the user him or herself within the application. So the idea that the application knows this is the sort of person that you are. Um, I mean, one thing I would say about that is that the algorithm probably doesn't really know who the person is outside of the sorts of posts that increase engagement. Um, 
so it knows that generally certain posts will increase engagement and so it'll suggest more posts like that and that's what will lead to kind of echo chambers and will lead to feeds just not providing a sort of balanced perspective on things maybe it suggests a post from a particular sort of political ideology or something like that and doesn't suggest anything else because it knows that the user isn't going to click on stuff that doesn't align with their political beliefs this also ties into social science theory where you have this kind of concept of homophily this idea that people will naturally gravitate towards people other people who are more like themselves this idea of uh, birds of birds who flock birds of a feather flock together there you go that's the phrase <laughs> i just remembered what it was um so that's obviously another part of it um i will say with, with the way that this sort of algorithm is presented it's obviously presented in a way that functionally it probably is how the application works but i don't think it's necessarily something where if you took that data out people would really like you it's not like there is this representation of this person like you have a face almost like this voodoo doll it's presented as in the in the film this voodoo doll of the user um where you can just have an idea of what that person's sort of weaknesses are and how you can exploit them particularly when it comes to advertising choosing what adverts to present to people um but i don't think that necessarily um the developers do this kind of intentionally right like in, the developers don't kind of do this in such a way where they know this person um i mean they barely they probably barely look into the engine and they don't really know how the sort of the machine learning algorithms work um the machine learning algorithm is just based on you know many many times of sort of trial and error of just trying to get a sense as to you know this this kind of content gets this percentage of um this kind of percentage increase in engagement and this sort of content doesn't increase engagement. So, you know, we know what we're going to suggest. So it's just based on trying to recognize patterns and it's not necessarily something that's done on a conscious level that a, that a developer does this consciously or that uh, I don't necessarily know if companies intended for this to happen, but that is what happened. And this is the sort of content that uh, gets uh, suggested to people and this is the sort of effects that it can have on people in that now we can't sort of be away from our phones we need to have our phones on us at all times and we can't sort of be without that you know that dopamine rush and that's another thing is that um they sort of compare in the documentary they compare the sort of social media feeds to the idea of um of like slot machines you get this little rush of um of dopamine when it comes to notifications and the thing is notifications for applications need to be uh, staggered in a way because if if you get notifications too often then um you're, you're probably going to delete the app because it is just annoying but if you don't get it enough then it's not going to keep you engaged you want it at the sort of right kind of frequency so that uh, every time you sort of see like a little notification from an app you get a little excited because you think oh cool someone's uh, liked my photo or someone has done this or that or whatever it may be so those kind of intervals between kind of uh, uh, little bouts of satisfaction that's kind of what's uh, been likened to a to a slot machine for sure um, and then obviously the uh, the documentary then talks about sort of social media censorship um, the idea that there's a lot of content on social media that 
uh, it gets suggested to people and it then puts them down this rabbit hole. Because if you if you think about it this way, we we want to be uh, as informed as possible. But if all the information that you're getting is essentially trying to narrow you down one perspective, just based on the sort of content that you click on, it's very easy for you to then get stuck in this rabbit hole. It's very easy for you to just see the same sort of content. And then you think that it must be true because all the content you see seems to uh, back up this view that you have. But that's not because everyone agrees. It's only because that's all you're seeing. You're not seeing anything else from other perspectives. So that's kind of where, um, you know, people can start to believe in, unfortunately, a lot of conspiracy theories. So obviously now with uh, vaccinations for coronavirus starting to be developed, um, there's obviously a lot of fear about that online. And, um, you know, that's obviously something that contributes to really bad things. And then it contributes to real world events such as um, in Myanmar, the uh, sort of events over there as well. So uh, this is kind of the, the issue is that you have a you have applications that are based entirely around engagement, around keeping people using the applications as much as possible. But at the same time, uh, being factually correct, being honest is not what drives engagement. And so um, there's always that that's essentially gets traded off the uh, presence of fake news is kind of seen at least in the eyes of the sort of social media metric of um, usage is seen as a necessary evil in order to drive engagement so that's kind of the big <laughs> that's the that's the problem right there um, and you know generally speaking I think the documentary does do a good job of sort of presenting those things. Um, I do think that the the representation of the sort of voodoo doll in each of the applications is a little bit simplistic, but I don't because I don't know if it's that specific and it's that targeted in this way of like, oh, if we present this ad, this advert here, it's really going to be effective because between these uh, between these hours, they seem to be more susceptible to this kind of advertising or something like that. Um, so that's kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's really that targeted because I don't know, I sometimes get adverts that just don't make sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I even, even, even if they are targeted ads, they just don't make any sense uh, to me. So they just don't have any effect on me. Um, but then again, I guess that's one of the sort of issues within marketing and advertising in general is that you have people who have different levels of susceptibility susceptibility to subliminal messaging and things like that. So it's a bit of a sort of complicated issue there. Um, so the uh, documentary does suggest a series of sort of countermeasures, basically things that we can sort of do, thing, changes that we can make to, uh, in our lives to um, try and combat these sort of ideas of social media. Um, I mean, one thing is obviously uninstalling these sorts of applications. Um, which is kind of easier said than done. <laughs> I feel like we've had multiple instances of um, you know people saying, oh, let's, let's delete Facebook. We can't possibly um, keep having Facebook. We can't possibly keep using it because it contributes to a lot of real world misinformation and um, yeah, hate speech and things like that. But it doesn't really seem to work. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg even had to present to the US Senate about 
is about Facebook and about how they make money, about how they sell uh, the data of their users, but it didn't really seem to do very much um, because I think people, loads of people still use uh, Facebook. It's still widely used, um, probably more for convenience. Like even if you present these sorts of problems to people, people are still going to use it because they think, well, how am I going to meet up with people and organize stuff? How am I going to know when people's birthdays are? Because yeah, Facebook is maybe the only way that um, anyone knows when anyone's uh, birthday is um, because you get those sort of reminders and stuff like that. So for the convenience sake, it's probably easier said than done to actually get people to disengage from social media entirely. Um, but maybe you, you can sort of make changes to how you use them. So for example, uh, never accepting recommended videos on YouTube, Facebook, or anywhere like that. Trying to avoid clickbait material um, are sort of a couple of the suggestions. Um, obtaining sources of information for, with, from different perspectives. Um, Fact-checking fact -checking, uh, stories before sharing, liking, or commenting. Um, stuff like that, which I think, again, is probably stuff that um, probably resonates outside of social media anyway. It's just kind of being a good consumer of information. Um, so that's sort of stuff like, you know, sharing and fact-checking and... Uh, getting a balanced perspective on certain stories. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you would probably do if you're just consuming news um, or if you're listening to the radio or stuff like that. It's probably stuff that applies even outside of social media, um, but it's really sort of worth emphasizing. And it's the problem that um, one of the things that I think social media misses is, well, sorry, I think that the documentary maybe doesn't emphasize is the fact that information travels a lot quicker if it's, uh, more bite-sized, if it's more um, compressed in a way that it's easier to travel. It's something that's compressed is easy, uh, is then, uh, let me start that again. <laughs> Information that's more compressed travels further and travels easier. So if you're trying to get a complicated message across, a complicated message will not translate and get across to people very quickly. But if it's nice, if it's nice and simple, this kind of Occam's razor idea, if it's simple, then it'll travel very quickly and travel very far. And that's kind of what social media is specialized in, is that you have these quick, short bursts of information, um, even like a tweet or something like that. Um, because it's so simple um, and probably has stripped out a lot of the nuance, then that's the sort of stuff that will drive engagement. I mean, even when news stories get uh, shared, I don't know how many people really click on the news story, they probably just read the headline. I mean, that would be sort of interesting to see because I reckon that the majority of people who consume news via social media probably don't even click on the actual article and read it. They probably just look at the headline and, you know, headlines themselves might be designed in sort of deceiving ways. Um, and then maybe you, and then it only takes that person to then say to someone else, oh, did you hear about blah, blah, blah. And they only just got it from the headline and it probably makes the story sound a lot more egregious and basically very different to how it actually is again stripping out all the nuance and then once that word of mouth starts then it just kind of proliferates around sort of social networks and i mean real life social networks and social groups rather than just the these kinds of social networks the online ones um so that's something that i think the, the documentary could have sort of emphasized is just the fact that 
the reason that we have the sort of problems that the documentary talks about is just the fact that um, these apps really necessitate the compression of information. That's why tweets have word limits. Even the fact that Twitter raised the character limit on tweets, they're still very short. They're still like, you know, what is it, 240 characters? There's nothing, you know. So there's not much you can really, uh, there's not a lot of nuance that you can say. And I don't think people are going to read entire <laughs> threads even. They're probably just going to uh, look at single tweets because smaller information, more compressed information will travel further and will travel farther. Um, I did just say further and farther. That's probably not right. <laughs> what I meant to say is that it travels easier. Um, so some of the other sort of suggestions that they have is then do not give uh, devices to children. Um, so this is obviously an, an interesting one. You know, what's the sort of age to introduce um, devices to kids? I mean, I'll say that in my case, I was probably one of the last people in my uh, my sort of year group in school to actually get a phone. And I feel like I probably appreciate that. Um, and I think even my, my first phone wasn't actually that technologically capable. Like, say, if you're giving a child a phone, it's like, okay, you know, give I'll give you this phone, but only for emergencies. Give them like a Nokia, like an old school Nokia brick or something. Because um, you know they got they got Snake, and I think Snake we can all agree is pretty pretty good. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't think Snake gives you a lot of misinformation or something like that. But something like that is just you know you have the practical use of a phone, which we all know what the practical use of it is, which is I can call people in the case of emergencies and stuff like that. That's like the the base use of a phone. But obviously now they can do so many other things on them. And I think that maybe you start there with kids. And then it's a question of what's the right age. I mean, in my case, I think it was maybe, I don't know, 14 when I got a phone. So pretty late, actually. And I sort of appreciate that because I think, yeah, you need to sort of let kids appreciate the outside world and actually have the ability to make friends and be sort of sociable in the real world rather than in the virtual world. Um, so I think I sort of definitely agree with that one. Um, and then another one is, uh, well, keeping the devices out of the bedroom after a certain time. Um, I think definitely one thing I would say is um, blue light filters. Definitely look into those for your devices because blue lights um, may have sort of adverse effects on uh, your sort of ability to uh, sleep and things like that. So I definitely say that, uh, you know, looking at screens before going to bed or looking at them whilst you're in bed is uh, not really, I think, ideal. Um, and then turning off notifications and reducing the number of notifications you receive. Um, I think that's definitely uh, a big one. I think particularly if you notice that apps are giving you a lot of notifications, um, then maybe the app is kind of trying to coax you into you know, using it more and engaging with it more. Um, Indeed, if the the way that it's presented in the, in the documentary is correct, then the frequency of notifications could maybe be tailored to how you use it. It reacts to how you use it. So maybe the app notices that you aren't really opening it a lot. So maybe it ups the number of notifications. And so, you know, I think generally just getting rid of applications that you don't need is probably a good thing. If you reduce the number of apps you have, you reduce the number of notifications you have. Um, so I think definitely that that's what I would recommend as well. Uh, and then probably one last one that I'll just sort of uh, mention here 
is um, using browser extensions to block recommendations. And um, I guess this ties into the sort of targeting of advertising. Um, you know, targeted ads, uh, you can sort of do it in a way where, unfortunately, with a lot of web pages, they rely on ads in order to sort of function. That's how a lot of websites kind of make money is just through the advertising. Um, and it's not just sort of with social media. I mean, that's how social media makes money as well. Is um, you know, this is the sort of interesting thing is that uh, it makes you wonder why is Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, why is it free? Well, if it's, it can't actually be free, like there has to be a cost somewhere and they have to make money somehow. And so um, that's one of the things that's uh, so mentioned in documentaries that the product is you, the user, your sort of screen time. And so your ability to be engaged with these applications to look at advertising is sort of how these companies are able to make money and not just make money, but make a lot of money. I mean, these are obviously the most sort of powerful companies in the world. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a sort of whirlwind tour of, uh, the social dilemma. It's, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of things that are very, uh, pressing and sort of relevant. Um, one thing I will say is that, uh, when I said this, when I heard about the documentary and, and how much attention it was getting, um, I realized that I was actually subscribed to the mailing list of the center for humane technology, even before the documentary like anyone sort of knew about it. Um, so it was like, I was subscribed to it like ages ago and then the film came out and then I, and then I saw like an email in the mailing list. And I was like, Oh, this is the same. This is the company that makes the, that made the documentary. So I didn't sort of put two and two together. Um, so that was kind of funny, but uh, obviously you can subscribe to the mailing list, the center for humane technology. Uh, if you're sort of interested in learning more, um, and, uh, you know, I think that definitely when it comes to some of the, I mean, the most, I guess, uh, pessimistic uh, predictions about the sort of effects of social media it kind of leads to deep sort of polarization of society and the fact that we aren't able to talk to each other anymore and stuff like that. Um, even if you sort of, uh, definitely people could maybe claim that uh, the, even the most sort of, the most pessimistic predictions aren't true, but even if they aren't, I mean, the sort of less pessimistic predictions still aren't great. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, you have to still maybe take it seriously. And there's not really much evidence to say that it couldn't then get to an even worse stage. Um, but definitely sort of think about maybe ways in which you can control your sort of app usage and the apps that you use. Um, I use some, I also use sort of apps to manage the productivity. So apps that essentially lock lock themselves, that lock the phone essentially, so that I can actually focus on work. Um, so stuff like that is, I think, quite useful as well. Um, and yeah, I think sort of definitely it's good because uh, I think when I watched the documentary, it made me reflect on my technology usage, um, reflect on sort of ways in which maybe I can uh, change the way that I use technology. It's maybe not an ideal time because obviously you might think, oh, well, I don't know, go out more or meet friends more. But unfortunately, the time, the timing isn't great on that because that's, I think, the, the remedy to a lot of this stuff is stuff that we can't really do right at the moment. But hopefully, um, as uh, things return to normal, as we're able to be outside more and go out, um, then I think that 
maybe it'll be easier to make changes to the way that you interface with uh, technology. Um, so yeah, I would be keen to know all of your thoughts on the documentary and maybe how, what sort of changes you think that you would want to make in how you use uh, social media and stuff like that. Um, and that's, uh, that's me. I am the singular tech bro, uh, signing off and I will see you in the next one. Goodbye.